Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. <clears throat> we are looking at the subject of missionaries and martyrs. Now, when you think of a missionary, you think of someone who shares their faith. And obviously, we're called to share our faith. And martyr represents someone who stands for Jesus Christ. And so, we're going to be looking at martyrs and missionaries this morning in Revelation chapter 7. Now, before we get into the book of Revelation, let me just give you a little tidbit here that a lot of Christians are not aware of. Revelation is a controversial book, and the reason why is it's how you date the book of Revelation. That's really the bottom line. And there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is that the book of Revelation written by John was written in the late 60s, before 70 AD. Now, 70 AD was a watershed time in Israel's history. This was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so this particular view says that the book of Revelation is not talking about future events that we would talk about, but it's predicting what is going to happen in 70 AD. So for example, Nero, who was on the throne in the 60s, he's the beast mentioned in Revelation 13, according to this view. So they say all the events were fulfilled in 70 AD. The other view, which is the view that John and I hold to, is that Revelation was written in the late 90s after the destruction of Jerusalem. So most of the events talked about our future. And the reason why we hold this view is because there was an early church father by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus basically said in one of his letters that John wrote his apocalypse during the reign of Domitian. Domitian was one of the Roman emperors during the 90s. He was persecuting Christians. And so that's just to give you an idea of why this book is controversial and scholars are divided on this, but we hold to the fact that the book is dealing with future events. Now, as we look at this, let me give you a review of where we've been so that when we come to chapter 7, you'll have a better understanding. If you remember in this slide right here, in chapter 1, John is banished to the island of Patmos, and while he's there, he has a vision of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is seen among seven golden lampstands, and those lampstands represent the seven churches, and Jesus is moving among those churches. He also has in his right hand seven stars, which represent the seven pastors of the churches. And so, John gets this vision in chapter one when he's on that island. He sees Jesus in his glorified state. And then Jesus tells John, I want you to write to the seven churches the message that I give you. And this letter of revelation was delivered to the seven churches located in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey today. And Jesus had a message for each one of those churches. And by the way, those churches represent different types of churches today. Then when you get to chapter 4, John is caught up into a portal in heaven. He's taken up there, and when he goes into the spirit, into that realm, here's what he sees in chapter 4. He sees the throne room of God. This is an awesome vision. You see God is seated on his throne here. He says in Revelation 4 that he looks like jasper, which is like a diamond. That's the glory of God. And you see the sardius, which is red. And then you see the emerald rainbow. And then God is holding a scroll in his right hand. And then he says in Revelation 4, before the throne were the seven spirits of God, which is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Then you have the angels. 
And then you have the 24 elders seated on their throne, they're crowned. And then you have the four living creatures right here. And this is the scene that John sees when he's caught up there. Now, why is God giving John this scene? Well, he's trying to show John that he's on the throne. That in spite of the fact that the judgments are going to break out on the earth, God is sovereign and he's on his throne and he's holding in his hand the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. And what he's going to do is take back the earth from Satan, the usurper. Well, the question arises, who's worthy to take the scroll and open it? And that's where we get to chapter 5. The next slide, you'll notice here that John weeps because no one was worthy to take the scroll and break the seals. And so in chapter 5, on the next slide, you notice that the angel, next slide, says basically that Jesus is worthy of opening the scroll because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus here takes the scroll from the Father and what he's going to do is take each one of those seals and he's going to break it. And when he breaks the seal, a judgment happens upon the earth. And that's when we looked at last week in chapter 6, the first set of judgments. This would be the seal judgments. John went through each one of these judgments right here. And then when we get to chapter 8, we have the seventh seal. Now notice John went through all of the first six seals, but he did not get to the seventh seal. That happens in chapter 8. And right here, you have what we're going over this morning, which is basically a pause. It is a respite. It is a parenthesis. In between the sixth seal and the seventh seal... God is giving us a little pause or a little break. He's letting us catch our breath. Because in the first six seals, you have judgment, judgment, judgment. You got to catch your breath. And so between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, God gives this parenthesis or this respite to basically say this. During the tribulation period, there's going to be a bunch of missionaries. There's going to be a worldwide revival and there's going to be people martyred for their faith, but I'm going to do a great work. To look at another slide, this will help you visualize it. You have the seven seals up here, and notice between the sixth and the seventh seal, what we're looking at right now, chapter seven, you have this parenthesis. Now in chapter eight, when the seventh seal is broken, you know what that does? It activates the seven trumpet judgments. And then you have the first six trumpets that are blown, and then there's another parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, just like up here at the seals. Between the sixth and the seventh, you have a parenthesis. Between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, you have a parenthesis. And then when the seventh trumpet is blown, that activates the seven bowl judgments. And between the sixth and the seventh bowl, you have another parenthesis. So that really is a layout of the book of Revelation right there for you. Now we're looking at chapter 7, we're looking at that parenthesis, that respite, we're looking at that reprieve, as it were, to help us understand that during the tribulation, there's going to be missionaries and martyrs. Let's look at the first category in chapter 7, let's look at the Jewish missionaries, Jewish missionaries. Now, there are two characteristics that he gives about the Jewish missionaries. Number one, they are sealed. They are sealed. Notice, if you will, verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. You'll see the map up on the screen. 
and you'll see those four angels located at the four corners of the earth. Now, skeptics will often criticize the Bible and say that the Bible is unscientific because we know that the earth is not flat, although you'd be surprised there is a society called the Flat Earth Society. Do you realize there are a lot of people that believe that the earth is flat? Well, the earth is not flat, I can tell you that. When it talks about the four corners of the earth, it's not being unscientific. It's using symbolic language to basically talk about the four points of a compass. And so what you have here are four angels who are at the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west, and notice what they're doing in verse 1. They're holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, what are these angels doing holding back the wind? What's the significance of this? Well, the wind represents God's judgment. You'll notice it on the next slide. It represents God withholding the judgment of the trumpet judgments that are going to come upon this earth. And so these angels are acting as God's agents to hold back the natural elements from coming upon the earth when he sends out the trumpet judgments. And by the way, just as a footnote, angels in the Bible are often used to control the elements of the earth. For example, in the book of Revelation, angels are seen controlling water, they're seen controlling wind, and they're seen controlling fire. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised that angels played a bigger part in God's creation more than we realize. And so here are these angels holding back the winds of judgment that are about to come on the earth through the trumpet judgments. And the question is why? Well, notice if you will, he tells us why in verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, holding the seal of the living God. Now you'll notice up here, you have these four angels They're basically holding back judgment on the earth. Why? Because this fourth angel or this angel over here coming from the east has a seal in his hand. And the question is, why does he have the seal? Well, look at verse 2 and 3. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. This fourth angel tells the other angels, hey, don't do anything until I seal the 144,000 Jews. I'm going to protect them before the judgments are released upon the earth. Now, what is this seal that this angel places on the 144,000? Is it real? Is it something he stamps on their forehead? Is it symbolic? Well, in that day, you understand what a seal is. You'll notice up on the screen a scroll here. And basically what they would do in ancient times is they would take a scroll and they would roll it and then they would tie it with a rope. And then on the knot of that rope, they would put a seal. And then they would turn it again. They would tie it and put another seal. And the seal basically signified ownership and protection. So when God seals these 144,000 through the angel, what he's doing is he's setting them apart and he's basically stamping them with protection. God is saying they belong to me, ownership, 
And he's saying that I am going to protect them from the trumpet judgments that are going to fall upon the earth. You know, it came to me this week when I was having coffee, as I do every morning, I went to get the creamer, and it was a a new creamer bottle. And as soon as I undid the cap, I noticed this seal right on the top of it, and of course I had to peel it off. Why do they put that seal there? Well, they want to protect the contents that are inside the particular bottle. Well, that's exactly what God is doing here through the angel. The seal represents God's protection, and it represents God's ownership over the 144,000. Now, no doubt, John is borrowing from the language of Ezekiel chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but in Ezekiel chapter 9, God is going to judge Israel because of their idolatry. He's going to destroy them because they have allowed idols to be erected in the temple. And God tells an individual in Ezekiel chapter 9, I want you to mark and I want you to seal all those who did not participate in idolatry. And so it's a form of protection. Here's an interesting contrast in the book of Revelation. Do you realize that the Antichrist has his seal? He has his mark. If you take the mark of the beast, that is tantamount to selling your soul to the devil. In fact, we're not to take the mark, and it says in Revelation 13, if you don't take the mark, you cannot buy or sell. And so, before God is going to unleash the trumpet judgments in chapter 8, he tells these angels, I want you to hold back the wind, and this one angel is going to stamp and is going to set apart and seal 144,000 Jewish men in order to protect them from the judgments that are to come. Now, here's the good news. The Bible says as Christians, you and I are sealed by the Holy Spirit. God may not protect us from temporal judgments, but the Bible says that if we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, we are protected from the wrath of God. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 1 says. Most of you know this passage. It says this, when you believed, you were marked in him that is in Christ with a what? Seal the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. In other words, the moment you accepted Jesus Christ, you know what God did? He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's signet ring. And the moment you came to Christ, he stamped you with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you is God's way of saying he owns you and he is protecting you from the eternal wrath to come. You know, one of the stores that they have in New Jersey that I appreciate it, I like them better than 7-Eleven, are Wawa's. Wawa's are out New Jersey, and one day I was going in there to get a coffee, and the coffee was extremely hot. You ever grab a hot cup of coffee, and it kind of burns your hand? And, and I took a sleeve, which all of you have done before at Starbucks or maybe Dunkin' Donuts, and you put that sleeve through the coffee, and you know what it does? It protects you from the heat. Well, you know, Jesus Christ is that sleeve. The Holy Spirit is that sleeve. It protects you from the heat of God, the wrath of God. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, when God seals the 144,000 Jews, it shows us that God has a remnant. Among all the pagans and non-believers that are going to be on the earth during the tribulation period, 
God is going to have a select number that he is going to seal because they are a remnant. God has always had a remnant throughout all generations. Do you remember Elijah when he complained to God that he was the only one following God? And you remember what God's answer to Elijah was? He says, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. See, God always has his remnant throughout church history. And listen, even though these 144,000 Jews are sealed, it doesn't mean that Jewish people won't die during the tribulation period. There will be many who rebel against God and die. If you read Zechariah chapter 13, it says two-thirds of the rebels are going to be purged. Every two out of three Jews are going to be purged. But it's also going to refine the Jews, and God is going to seal them and protect them for a particular mission. Now, notice their sealing. We go to their selection. Notice their selection in verse 4. It says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, there were 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. What he shows us here is that 12,000 from each tribe are going to be selected. Now, some people say that this isn't literal. In other words, the 144,000 represents a symbolic number. And they try to argue that the 144,000 is not a literal number. It is a symbolic number that refers to all of God's people. I charitably disagree with that view. I think here it is literal 12,000 Jews from the 12 tribes. Now, if you'll notice here, Jacob, in the book of Genesis, had 12 sons, and all Jews can trace their lineage back to one of these tribes. 12,000 from each tribe. You say, well, where are the records? The records have been destroyed. We don't have them. But God knows the lineage of all the Jews. Now, when you read the 12 sons of Israel and you read them in the Bible, there's 19, listen carefully, there are 19 different presentations of these 12 tribes, and they're not all the same. In other words, one name is omitted and another name is put in the place. There are 19 different configurations. Here's another configuration, and here is where this is controversial. Levi was not given land, and so Levi should not be included here, but yet Levi is. Dan is left out. And then, of course, Joseph had two sons. He had Manasseh and he had Ephraim. But Ephraim is left out and Joseph is put in the place. And people speculate, why is Dan not here? Why is Ephraim not here? And some people think it is because both of those tribes led Israel into idolatry. Some argue that the Antichrist is going to come from the tribe of Dan. Therefore, that's why Dan is omitted. But by the way, that implies that the Antichrist is Jewish. If he comes from the tribe of Dan, and I don't believe the Antichrist is Jewish, I think you can argue from Revelation 13 that the Antichrist is Gentile because he comes from the sea, as it were. He's the beast out of the sea, and the sea represents the Gentile nations. And so 
We don't have to reconcile all 19 accounts of the different tribes of Israel, but just know like this. God is going to select from each one of these tribes 12,000 Jewish men according to Revelation chapter 14 because the 144,000 are there as well in chapter 14. He's going to select 12,000 from each of the tribes, and here's what he's going to select them for. They are going to be missionaries. They are going to be Billy Grahams. They are going to be Billy Sundays. Listen, they may be sealed spiritually, but they're not sealed in their lips. They're going to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see one of the greatest revivals during the seven-year tribulation. Why? Because they're going to lead many people to Christ. In fact, the Gentiles that follow in this chapter who are martyred for their faith, many people believe that these Jewish evangelists are the ones that are going to lead those Gentiles to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit, and guess what he's done? He has selected you to be a witness for him. He calls you to be a witness in your lifestyle. You see, people need to see the genuineness of your faith and my faith if they're going to believe in Jesus Christ. I like what one of the philosophers said, show me your redeemed life and I'll be inclined to believe in your redeemer. Show me your redeemed life and I'll be inclined to believe in your redeemer. Let me ask you a question. Are you living out your faith in your house? Not perfectly. How about on your job? Do people know that you're a Christian on your job by the way you live? See, we're called to be witnesses, not just in what we say, but in how we live. And you know what non-believers can sniff out? Hypocrisy. If you say you're a church-going person and you're living a contradictory lifestyle, you know what happens? That's a turnoff to non-believers. In fact, I was going to the gym this week and I get up early to go to Planet Fitness and as I was driving, I noticed some runners running and they had these lights on them and they were shining. In fact, they were pulsating as they were running. And I thought, you know, that's a good illustration for Christians. We live in a perverse, corrupt, dark generation. But you know what Christians are called to do? According to Philippians chapter 3, we're called to shine as what? Lights. But listen, it's not just our lifestyle evangelism. It's also our verbal proclamation. Just as the 144,000 have been sealed and selected in order to preach the gospel, you and I are called to be verbal witnesses as well. When was the last time you shared your faith? Now I realize we all don't have the gift of evangelism, and if you don't have the gift, you're not going to do it as often as someone who has the gift, but God calls all of us to be verbal witnesses for him. This weekend, I had an opportunity. I use my computer a lot in order to reach out to people. What I do is I read articles on Fox News, and then I'll leave comments. I won't tell you what my domain name is. They're not bad comments, although sometimes I get into debates with people. But I always give the gospel. In fact, a guy died yesterday from Zappos. I think he was the CEO of Zappos. And I left a comment and I said, condolences to the family. I said, it is a reminder that death is going to come knocking on all of our doors and we have to make sure that we are ready to meet the Lord. And then I put Romans 10, 9, and 10. And guess what? Man, I got like 150 check marks, but I also got comments. And I was able to debate somebody and share my faith with a number of people just online. I got in a discussion 
Thanksgiving with a guy who went to seminary who's turned his back on God. And I was able to argue for the existence of God as he went, we went back and forth for two days. I want to be a witness for Jesus Christ, and I'm going to use whatever means that I can to get the gospel out. And that's exactly what God calls you to do. You may not do it like me. You may not do it like John. But you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to be a witness for him, not only in your lifestyle, but in your verbal proclamation. And so we've seen the Jewish missionaries. They've been sealed and they've been selected. Let's secondly look at the Gentile martyrs, the Gentile martyrs. Notice, if you will, several characteristics about them. They are diverse. Notice, if you will, verse 9. He says, and after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. As John has this vision, he sees an innumerable amount of Gentile martyrs that are up in heaven, and notice they're diverse. They're from every tongue, every tribe, every language. You know what this tells us? God is a missionary God. Listen, God never intended the Jewish people simply to be his chosen nation, us four, no more, shut the door. But you know what Israel did? Israel perverted their calling. Rather than be a channel, they became a cul-de-sac. And God says in the book of Isaiah, he intended Israel to be a witness nation to the other nations. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world and what? Preach the gospel. He says, go into all nations. That Greek word ethnos means all people groups. That's why from the time that I committed my life to Christ, I was committed to missions. I've been to South America. I've been to Central America. I've been to Africa. I've been to other places, Amsterdam. In fact, one memorable trip that I went on, which is probably my most difficult, was Scotland. I went with a group right here to Scotland. We went to Edinburgh, and we went to Glasgow, and we did evangelism. And listen, I'm going to tell you right now, the unbelief in Scotland is unbelievable. They had a festival, and so we were there at the right time. And everybody that we talked to was either agnostic, atheist, or they were part of the state church. Very few people were open to the gospel. We did get in some great conversations. But you know why we went to Scotland? It's because God is a missionary God. And by the way, depending on how coronavirus uh, plays out, I'm hoping here we're going to do a trip to Ireland. I want to take a group to Ireland. I've always had a vision to go there and preach the gospel. So file that in the back of your mind. And so we see here among the Gentile martyrs that they are diverse. Secondly, they are saved and victorious. Notice, if you will, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, and all the tribes, peoples, and languages. Notice here, they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and here it is. They are clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. This shows us that they are saved and victorious. How are they saved and victorious? Well, they're clothed in white clothes. You know what that's a symbol of? It is a symbol of glorification. It is a symbol that now they're perfect in Jesus Christ, and they're before the throne of God. They're perfectly holy. The palm branches in their hand represents victory. 
It represents that they are standing before the throne of God victorious. That's how palm branches are often used. You remember when Jesus rode in Jerusalem in his triumphal entry? They took their clothes, they put them on the ground, and they were waving palm branches, and they said what? Hosanna, Hosanna, which means salvation now. They were saying, Jesus, as you come into Jerusalem, deliver us from the Romans. Palm branches is a sign of victory. See, these people were nothing on earth, but now they're in heaven victorious. By the way, palm branches, I remember them very vividly. I grew up in the Orthodox Church. I was an altar boy. My dad actually led the altar boys. I always got in trouble. I was always clowning around. I remember we had to stand before the altar like this. And the other altar boys would be standing across from me. And the priest would be doing all of his stuff. And I remember we'd start giggling. Remember that? And then all of a sudden, I'd feel a hand come on my shoulder and pull me back. It was my dad saying, stop laughing. I had to go through all this. But I remember every year, we would reenact Palm Sunday. Those of you who grew up in the Catholic Church or maybe the Orthodox Church, we would go outside and they'd give everybody these palm branches. Some of them were made real nice into crosses, but we'd go outside on the road and they'd actually wave them around to reenact Palm Sunday. Well, these Gentile martyrs, they're up in heaven, they're glorified, they're perfect, and they're standing before God victorious. There's a third thing that he mentions about these Gentile martyrs, and that is this, they are worshiping. Notice, if you will, verses 10 through 12. And they cried out with a loud voice. There's the worship. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. They're praising God for their salvation. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And look at this. And they fell on their faces. Have you ever fallen on your face before God? They fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God. And here is the chorus of worship saying, amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to our God forever and ever. You know what they're doing? They are thanking God for saving them. And listen, when you and I get to heaven, one of the things we're going to worship God throughout all eternity is that he saved us. It may not seem that significant now, but when we get to heaven, we're going to realize that the best gift that God gave us was salvation. That's why Jesus called it the pearl of great price. You sell everything you have in order to get that pearl because it's salvation. And so here's the question. Are you a worshiper now? Listen, we're going to be preoccupied with worship then. You say, well, that seems boring. Listen, you're going to be perfect. There is no boredom up there. It will bring you the highest joy and the highest fulfillment. And so if that is our preoccupation in heaven, we ought to be doing that now. Is worship in your heart? Watch this video.
worship in your heart? We know what the world offers, but is worship in our heart? There's a fourth thing he mentions about these Gentile martyrs, and that is this. They are martyred. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders responded, saying to me, and that would be one of the elders around the throne, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know, Obviously, it's a rhetorical question to elicit the answer. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what do you mean the great tribulation? Well, if you notice the map up here, the tribulation is divided into two, three and a half year periods. Right here, we're raptured, and then you have the three sets of judgments that are going to be poured out on this earth, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. By the way, these are not literal, they're symbols. They're literal judgments, but these are images to help communicate them. And notice the second half of the three and a half years is called the great tribulation. Why? Because the bold judgments are going to be poured out at the end in rapid fire succession, and they are devastating. It's called the Great Tribulation. The first three and a half years is called birth pangs. Just like when a woman gives birth, the contractions come quicker and they come stronger. And then it culminates with the return of Christ. And then he sets up his thousand-year kingdom. So these Gentile martyrs, he says, come out of the Great Tribulation. That would be the last three and a half years. Why are they martyred? They wouldn't take the mark. Revelation 13 says, if you don't take the mark, you cannot buy, sell, or eat. And they said, I'm not taking the mark because that's tantamount to selling my soul to the devil. They were willing to stand and they suffered for their faith. And so they came out of the great tribulation. And you know, I've asked myself this question a lot lately because of what's going on in our country. Mike, would you be willing to stand for Jesus and go to jail and if necessary, take a bullet for Jesus. I've had to ask my question, myself that question. Have you ever asked yourself that question before? How committed are you and are you willing to die for Jesus Christ if necessary? What did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily and what? Follow me. That is a tall order. And you know what? We need to be a generation of Christians that are willing to stand for Jesus Christ. I'm convinced. If persecution came to America, more than half of our churches would fold. A lot of these user-friendly consumer churches, these mega churches, not all of them, probably three-fourths of the congregation would bolt. Why? Because they have been sold a false message. They have been preached to a feel-good message. They're a bunch of pablum-pumping pulpits. 
And what happens is these people are not grounded. They're coming to Christianity for the wrong reason. They're coming basically and they're given a bunch of junk food and they're not fed the solid teaching of God's word. And so when the test comes, they say, this is not what I signed up for. And listen, I'm not saying true committed Christians can't deny God. Peter did. We all can buckle under weakness. But here's what I know. Are you listening? Say amen. If you're not sinking your roots deep in God now, and you're not laying the foundation now by being in the Word, being in prayer, serving God, seeking first the kingdom, if that is not your life, when the test comes, you know what's going to happen? You're going to fall away. Listen, God wants us to be strong, and that's what they are here. There's one guy that most of you have probably heard about. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and seminary professor during the regime of Hitler. Hitler grew increasingly more vocal about his hatred of the Jews. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer became very unsettled with that. And so what he began to do was he began to rescue some of the Jews. And he was actually hired as an agent to spy. And what he would do is he would actually rescue Jews. And then over time, he became part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. Now, he wasn't deep into the plot, but he wanted to help take Hitler out because Hitler was committed to the genocide of the Jews. Well, they finally found out about it, and the Germans arrested Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he was in jail for two years. And during that time, he wrote several books. One of them is on the cost of discipleship. After two years, they decided to hang him. And the doctor that was in the prison, here is what he said about Bonhoeffer's hanging. And I'll put it up on the screen so you can read it. The doctor said, quote, the prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer, and then he climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued a few, in a few seconds. And here's what he said. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God, end quote. That man was bold. You say, well, he had no choice. He could have gone kicking and screaming. What would you do? What would I do? I have to ask myself that question all the time. Well, there's another thing that he mentions about the Gentile martyrs as we wind down. He says they are serving. Notice, if you will, verse 15 of chapter 7, for this reason... It says they are before the throne of God, and they, here it is, serve him day and night in his temple. All of heaven is the temple of God, and that word service there is used of priests who served in the temple. You know what these Gentile martyrs are doing? They're not on a cloud up in heaven playing a harp. They're actually serving God. Part of that service is worship, but they're also going to be given assignments, did you know that the Bible says that you and I, when we get to heaven, we're going to have assignments? We're going to work. We're going to rule with Christ during the kingdom. Now watch this. Your assignment 
will be directly proportionate to your faithfulness now. The more faithful you are to God now, the greater your assignment in heaven. The more faithful you are to God now, the greater your spiritual 401k. And you know what a lot of Christians are doing? They're saying, well, you know, as long as I get into heaven, as long as I get in, that's all I care about. You know what you're doing? You're squandering your spiritual inheritance. You may get to heaven, and listen, there's no jealousy up there. We're not going to be competing over rewards. But listen, your inheritance is going to last forever. Any inheritance you get now, any 401k you have now, and there's nothing wrong with that, is not going to last. Our economy could crash and you lose everything. But listen, that is going to last forever. And so it behooves you to serve God now. Why? Because we're going to serve God in heaven. Adam and Eve served God in the garden before sin entered into the world. One person said that there are four types of bones in the church. Which bone are you? First of all, there is the wishbone. These are people that wish things would happen in the church, but they don't want to lift their finger to do anything. Are you a wishbone? Then there is the knuckle bone. These are the people that love to criticize verbally. They love to say, you know, I wish Pastor John would do this. I wish Calvary Chapel would do this. Why don't we have this ministry? You know what? We do this wrong and that wrong. They are a knuckle bone. They criticize, but they don't want to get involved. Then you have what is called the jawbone. These are people that like to do a lot of talking. They like to talk, oh, praise Jesus, praise God. They say amen on Sunday morning. But you know what? It's all talk and no do. And then there is what is called the backbone. These are the people that get involved who want to serve Jesus. And listen, our involvement is going to be at different levels based on our gifts, based on availability. And I understand there are times where we need to rest because we're hurting. Maybe we're tired or we have physical limitations. God understands that. But listen, there's no reason why everyone in this room, minus exceptions, shouldn't be involved in something. I've said to you many times before, God doesn't want Sunday Christians only. That is not biblical Christianity. It's not discipleship. Everyone here, minus a few exceptions, should be using their gifts to do something either on this campus or outside. It's not, ministry's not always on this campus. Well, there's one final characteristic of these Gentile martyrs, and I love this. They are in comfort. They are in comfort. Notice, if you will, verses 15 through 17. And he who sits on the throne, who's that? God, Jesus, the Spirit, will spread his tabernacle over them. He's using Old Testament language. In other words, God is going to encompass them with his presence. And notice when we're in the presence of God, this is wonderful, verse 16, they will no longer hunger or thirst. That means that they hungered and thirst during the tribulation. Why? Because they did not take the mark of the beast. They suffered deprivation. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. It may mean that they didn't have shelter. And by the way, in the bowl judgments, one of the bowl judgments, God sends searing heat on this earth to where people on the earth are going to curse God because the heat is so bad. You think Columbia is the armpit of South Carolina? You ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to be hot. And it says here, they're not going to experience that anymore. Verse 17, why? For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The Antichrist was a false shepherd. 
Jesus is the true shepherd, and the true shepherd takes care of the needs of the sheep. And notice what he will do, reminiscent of Psalm 23. He will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. In other words, there's coming a better day, people, when there's no more suffering. There's no more difficulty. There's no more getting up in the morning going, oh, do I got to go to work today. There's no more fights with your spouse or your children. There's no more conflict. There's no more all this stuff going on in our society. When we get to heaven, it is going to be absolute joy, absolute felicity. It is going to be wonderful. And listen, because we're headed towards that, that's why we sacrifice now. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, we don't focus on what is seen. He says, because what is seen is visible. He says we focus in on what is invisible because what is invisible is what? Eternal. That's why we sacrifice. Two books you ought to read. I read them. Actually, 90 Minutes in Heaven, Don Piper, he's a Baptist minister. He was preaching a series of revivals probably 30 years ago, got in a car wreck, a rig hit his car, he died took a trip to heaven, came back. He's had 60 surgeries plus since then. He goes around the world sharing what happened to him. It's very authentic. He produced a movie. I'm very skeptical of people that supposedly have these out-of-body experiences. I tend to be very skeptical, but I can tell you this one is genuine. And you know what Don Piper said when he went up there? And here's the quote. You'll see it up on the screen. He said, heaven is a buffet of the senses. Heaven is a buffet of the senses. Everything's in HD. We are going to feel absolute love. This other book I read, John Burke, in fact, I got to mail it to my mom because my dad passed away three months ago. He's a pastor and he interviewed over a thousand people who had near-death experiences. And what he does is he takes it and filters it through the Bible and he shows you what's biblical and what's not. And you should hear the stories that he lists there in that particular book. It's very, very biblical. I wouldn't recommend these two if they weren't. But listen, what we learn from this is that we've got a great future awaiting us. Amen? So what did we learn this morning? We've seen two categories of people. We've seen Jewish missionaries. They have been sealed and they have been selected. And then we've seen the Gentile martyrs. They are diverse. They're saved and victorious. They are worshiping. They're martyred. They are serving God. They are in comfort. And so as we close, let me ask you a question. God wants you to be like the 144,000. We got to spread the word. We got to get the word out. You say, Pastor Mike, I don't know how to share my faith. Learn how to share your faith. Listen, if you want something, you go after it. If you really want to learn to share your faith, then get trained. Go out with us. And then take a stand for Jesus. We need Christians in this day and time that are going to take a stand for Christ. Let's stand as we worship our great God and as we close and let's worship him in spirit and truth. And this week as you go out, remember that God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Father, thank you this morning for your word to us and reminding us of these Jewish missionaries and these Gentile martyrs during the tribulation period. Help us, Lord, to be bold in our faith, Help us, Lord, especially in the time that we're living in, to take a stand in a spirit of love, a spirit of grace, but at the same time, to be bold in our faith. God, forgive us 
We've all fallen short, and we need your mercy and grace. And Lord, just as you're going to bring a massive revival during the tribulation period, I pray, Father, that you would bring another revival in our day and time. We need it in America. God, forgive us of our sins in this country. And God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon America, even if it means persecution. I pray, Father, that you would send your spirit and that we would see a harvest of souls that are saved before the rapture happens. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.